0: Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Countless Renaissance images of Christ's infancy allude either to his sacrifice or to evil, and sometimes to both. Each represents a kind of absence in the moment pictured, the ultimate death of the infant, and an intangible menace resisted by his coming. Although both occur widely in European work of the period, and are familiar to modern observers of Renaissance art, they have never been systematically addressed. In this lecture, recorded on January 25, 2015, based on his new book, Al Akers offers some suggestions about why this might be and examines the extraordinary variety of ways in which artists sought to convey these related ideas. In the challenge of representing two oblique presences, artists as diverse as Bosch, Botticelli, Bruegel, Gossert, Leonardo, and Michelangelo, among many others, Recognized a rich opportunity to cultivate new and deeply absorbing kinds of visual ingenuity.
1: Some of you will recognize this work, which came in modern times to be known as the Maroda Triptych. It's attributed to Robert Campin, a leading painter in the southern Netherlands in the 1420s, early 30s, and, uh, excuse me, uh, 30s, and early 40s. The central subject is the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel's visit to the Virgin Mary with the very unexpected news. Uh, that she was in fact expecting it has become a canonical work for various reasons including its unusual staging of this gospel moment in a humble domestic interior that would have looked local and contemporary to the original owners the original owners there in the left wing looking on through a doorway Early Netherlandish painting gives you a lot to look at, which means people see different elements on widely variable schedules. So, for example, some people would have seen immediately, and some would have noticed only eventually that as Gabriel brings his news, Christ is already on the way. A minute baby hurtling through the window above the angel. But at least as striking as this visibility of the word becoming flesh is the fact that he also carries his mortal future with him. In these instants, just before his incarnation, Christ is bearing the cross on which he will die as a man. In the right wing, we're given the rare scene of Joseph in his carpenter's shop. The device on his bench was identified already in the 19th century as a mouse trap, a 15th century mouse trap. But not until the 1940s, thanks to the great art historian Meyer Shapiro, was it recognized that this was something more than a charming prop. Most agree that it was meant to symbolize a medieval idea of Christ's incarnation as having been part of a trap for the devil, who would not have been watching for the Messiah in a marriage between a young virgin and an old man. This is not a depiction of evil, but rather an insinuation of its will. The trap reminds us that Satan is out there and that he's watching. The infancy of my title, Renaissance Invention and the Haunted Infancy, is that of Christ, and its haunting (coughs) is by these two things, his sacrifice and evil. Both of those are familiar in modern scholarship on this triptych, of which there is plenty, as are many other expressions of the anticipated sacrifice and lurking evil in Renaissance art. Since the Marauda triptych is in New York in the Cloisters Collection of the Metropolitan Museum, I offer a second introductory example closer to home. This panel, attributed to Botticelli, which is currently on view upstairs. It's been given the title Virgin Adoring the Child. We might call it a nativity too, or instead, but the gallery's title recognizes a distinctive focus here. Clearly, these are early moments at Bethlehem, with the manger there on the left, but no sign of Joseph or shepherds. What most interests me here are two unusual elements of the setting. The first is the masonry arch that opens onto impenetrable shadow in the foreground. If we try to explain it as the painter's solution to a compositional challenge, that is, filling the bottom of a round panel, uh, uh, not the easiest thing to do in this subject, we'd have to wonder why he didn't center the arch to improve the fit. Instead, he built it left of center, precisely below the Christ child. It's been suggested that this darkness was meant to evoke Christ's tomb, or perhaps the entrance to limbo. The painter could have had either in mind, but I believe he was thinking more of this dark cavity's reach beyond limbo, toward hell itself. Among several reasons for thinking so, I'll cite just one, which is the foreground of another variation on the nativity by the same painter, This is Botticelli's so-called mystic nativity in London, painted a decade or two later in 1500. Its imagery is unusual in many ways, many, many ways, the most pertinent here being the presence of five demons in the foreground, scurrying in and out of black holes in the earth, including uh, a couple right at the threshold of the picture. One here and one here. You can see a couple more, more clearly back here and here. In other words, analogous to the uh, to the position of the hole in the painting here in the gallery. The second relevant element of the Washington painting is above and a bit beyond the child, a garden gate in the middle ground. Like the arch below, this is non-standard equipment in an infancy image, and likewise not included as mere filler, which really was not needed in this a quite slim notch of landscape between the Virgin and the Shed. In Renaissance art, a door-like garden gate such as this appears nowhere more frequently than at the edge of Gethsemane, where it admits the soldiers who will arrest Christ in images of the agony in the garden. Like this one, uh, an engraving by a contemporaneous German master. We know him only by his monogram, uh, the master A.G., uh, just about the same time, 1480. This, too, by the way, an impression here at the gallery. Get you a little closer to it there. The painting thus creates a tight alignment between an ominous darkness below Christ and a structure vividly associated with his last days above. So we've begun with works attributed to two leading artists, one Netherlandish and one Italian, that tinge scenes from the infancy with the sacrifice and evil. Countless comparable references, especially to Christ's foreknown passion, have been recognized in Renaissance art. But until now, there's been no concentrated examination of how and why they proliferated as they did in these generations. Now, the passion and evil are, of course, completely different things. But I've considered them together because I see important parallels in how they came to occupy scenes of the infancy, including the facts that, first, both of them were articulated in an astonishing variety of ways, beginning in the 15th century and lasting well into the 16th. Uh, Second, both of them entail the representation of things that aren't supposed to be there. A death still off in the future, and a menace resisted by Christ's coming. In other words, one of them is not quite, and one of them is not yet. Third, they often appear together in the same work, as is the case with our first two examples. And fourth, viewed backward from modern times, neither of them has ever been deeply studied as a theme in Renaissance art. The book, the cover of which features a painting that I'll talk more about in a bit more depth at the end today, first asks why we haven't framed them as such. And it goes on to consider why Renaissance artists were so persistently fascinated by formulating these ideas. I did not choose the term haunted. Uh, because it sounds evocative, as if a screenplay might be uh, coaxed out of this material. Uh, First, the term actually predates this period. It's present in English and other European languages by the 13th century. But more importantly, uh, the core meaning of the verb haunt is to be someplace habitually, often with a disruptive or foreboding effect. Modern representations of haunting in literature and film make the habitual presence elusive or invisible, so much so, in fact, that those who are haunted may or may not be imagining things. Haunting is most at home on the edges of perception, uh, slipping back and forth between the mind and the physical world. This is so for many expressions of sacrifice or evil in Renaissance images of the infancy. Some, in fact, are actually, uh, I think, impossible to prove as having been intended by the artist, but fair to assume in light of so many analogous formulations in the period. In other words, for some of these, I think our imagination is recruited as part of the meaning and the effect of a work. So in what follows, I'll present a range of paintings chosen to reveal some of the sheer diversity of ideas cultivated to convey these themes, neither of which, it must be emphasized, illustrates or directly grows from any prime source in scripture or theology or devotional literature. One reason for their low profiles in modern scholarship is the fact that neither is nameable as a subject unto itself and that they occupy images for which we already have other names, an Annunciation, a nativity, an adoration of the magi, a Madonna, and Child and so forth. While inklings of uh, sacrifice and evil at the infancy each have multiple roots in the Bible and beyond, I believe that their vast bloom in Renaissance art owes much to artists' recognition that these ideas were almost uniquely amenable to rapidly rising powers of pictorial representation in the period. In other words, here, they understood, these artists understood, were two theologically fundamental ideas that they could express in ways that had little or no precedent in texts. So having said a word about what I mean by haunted, I should emphasize now that the term preceding it, invention, is really uh, the pole star of this entire project. I'll say a few words toward the end about why these themes seem to have tapped such deep reserves of ingenuity from so many artists in so many regions. The first detail we saw, the cross carried by the inbound child of the Maroda triptych, offers a good place to start because many crosses accompany him in Renaissance art. The most familiar of them are the small reedy ones that occupy many Florentine and Roman works from the decades around 1500. And there is uh, perhaps no finer example than another painting that is now upstairs, Raphael's great Alba Madonna of about 1510. As is often the case, this slim cross is offered by the infant John the Baptist. It had become his attribute uh, because uh, it was John who recognized Christ later when they were adults as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. As lamb, he is sacrifice. Christ is sacrifice. While it's easy to look past such crosses because they often appear in ways that make them look like a simple attribute, in the work of Raphael and several contemporaries, it becomes an object of thoughtful engagement. In the Alba Madonna, it's possessed by both boys, with Christ reaching to accept. Mary's gaze, which is made more purposeful by her turn from the book, in which she marks a page, is not at her son, but at the cross. That's worth noting because in medieval theology and devotional writings, the foreseen passion was most consistently expressed in terms of Mary's own sad foreknowledge of her son's fate. Leonardo had painted this picture, which came to be known as the Madonna of the Yarnwinder, about a decade earlier. If there were any doubt that he intended the object to signal the future... It's settled by a letter from a contemporary who knew this painting, had seen this painting. Describing it to a renowned collector, the collector was Isabella d'Este, who herself was hoping to acquire a Leonardo, he wrote that, and I quote, the child has grasped the yarn winder and gazes attentively at the four spokes that are in the form of a cross. As if desirous of the cross, he smiles and holds it firm and is unwilling to yield it to his mother, who seems to want to take it away from him. So here, as in the Alba Madonna, there's emphasis on the venerable idea of Mary's apprehension of his future. But why did Leonardo choose to convey it with something cross-shaped rather than a cross? A yarn winder was not an established symbol. We can find, I think, at least partial explanation for this in a remark in one of Leonardo's own notebooks, a remark that artists should observe accidental shapes that inspire the forms of more specific depictions. I think it bears quoting... If you look at any walls soiled with a variety of stains or stones with variegated patterns, when you have to invent some location, you will therein be able to see a resemblance to various landscapes, graced with mountains, rivers, rocks, trees, plains, great valleys, and hills in many combinations. And what happens with regard to such walls and variegated stones is just as with the sound of bells, in whose peal you will find any name or word you care to imagine." Leonardo thus explicitly valued the mind's power to transform incidental shapes into representations of other things, what is sometimes referred to uh, in our time as the image made by chance. Given this, his Yarnwinder cross embodies two phenomena that are really central to this whole project. First of all, the degree to which so many of these presences in the infancy are represented obliquely, sometimes to the extent of being almost hidden within a picture. And second, the degree to which so many of these formulations match tendencies or ideas long associated with that artist more generally. In other words, there emerge uh, seemingly native styles of conveying specific ideas. And I have to say that this is something that I did not expect to find when I began this project. A few more examples involving the cross in the infancy can help clarify this. Occasionally, its shape occupies the setting of a scene or even the composition itself. This seems an especially fitting strategy in Piero della Francesca's Legend of the True Cross cycle in Arezzo, the middle of the 15th century. Here the Annunciation is carefully designed so that the entire image is controlled by a cruciform division at its core. Notice, though, that the horizontals and verticals are arranged in a way that actually Uh, withholds a perfect cross. In other words, that for example, the dark band of marble here in the entablature doesn't line up across the center to make the transverse. The uh, central stave here, as it were, of the column uh, switches to something else, becomes the edge of the building above, the corner of the building. The whole scene is thus informed. It's literally informed by a cross realized in a viewer's imagination and planted there by an almost of composition. That cross could also have been fortified by the theme to which the entire chapel is dedicated, the legend of the true cross. It's almost as if the the eternal lifespan or the biography of the cross, which is what this uh, uh, chapel uh, explicates, uh, begins, in fact, up here in the the uppermost level in Eden with the death of Adam, uh, as if that... uh, uh, eternal presence of the cross lays claim to the infancy. The Annunciation is not a subject that would typically typically be included in this legend. Right? This is the sort of elegant, formal solution that one might predict, especially of Piero della Francesca, who was a writer on geometry and perspective, and one of art history's most intellectually calculating composers of the picture plane. The approach is completely different in a small painting by Jan Gosart from about 1532. It's another one I chose in part because it's here in the gallery, but also because I think it's an especially rich example. Again, the cross is invoked without being shown, but by different means. A smooth wood surface frames the child's extended right arm and hand. It becomes clear that the alignment is more than coincidence when we see that the wood belongs not to the arm of Mary's throne, which is how we might first See it, uh, but rather to a bench behind Christ. Uh, You realize that bench is further back in the room, but it's positioned and illuminated in such a way that it visually couches his arm. While the uh, left arm, his left arm, rises higher and is therefore not framed in the same way, the effort of that arm, which is guiding Mary's fruit bearing hand toward his mouth, strengthens the specter of the cross behind him. That's because his pull for the apple attests that he is the new Adam, as Christ had often been called, uh, the new Adam whose sacrifice will redeem fallen mankind from the transgression of the first Adam and Eve. So this painter found a way to have Christ reach simultaneously toward the past with his left hand toward Eden and the future with his right hand toward the cross. This very distinctive intimation of the cross hinges on two tendencies at the heart of Jan Gosart's style and career. The first of them is his eager emulation of Italian art, something that really set him apart among northern painters. And the second is his creative and very dedicated engagement with Flemish painting, native painting of a century earlier. The most relevant appearance of the Italian current here is in the muscular, dynamic body of the child, which had not been the norm in Netherlandish art. Uh, More specifically, the uh, meaningful activation of his arms enacts a form of prophetic body language that had various precedents in Italian art, as, for example, in this panel by Bramantino, in which the splay of those arms has long been recognized as anticipating his fate on the cross. The corresponding current of earlier Netherlandish art is the very idea of creating a symbolic impact in an ostensible coincidence on the surface of the picture, an ostensible overlap uh, with something in the background. Uh, Robert Campin, with whom we began, and other painters in his circle, had done this occasionally, as in the serendipitous halo of the so-called fire screen Madonna that is not in fact a halo but uh, but something to protect her from the flame of the fireplace behind. But I think Gossart was more likely to have appreciated one or more versions of this maneuver in the art of his hero, Jan van Eyck. For example, in the Roland Madonna, painted a century before Gossart's Washington Madonna, the Roland Madonna in Paris. The image puts the tactic to good use. For example, uh, it frames the Chancellor's face by uh, Burgundian vineyards that uh, supported his family's wealth uh, he casts a bridge over the river that neatly carries the blessing of the Christ child toward the patron. And behind the Christ child himself, uh, he creates something like a constellation of ecclesiastical, look, uh, ecclesiastical looking spires and towers that create something like a worldly crown for the Christ child that is analogous to the heavenly crown being bestowed uh, upon his mother by an angel above. Let me stress that what I'm emphasizing here, illustrating here really, is not Jan, Jan Gossart's adaptation of an embedded cross per se from other artists, but his pursuit of the idea by a combination of Italian and early Netherlandish strategies that pervade his entire artistic identity. One more cross with this in mind. Parmigianino left this very large altarpiece unfinished when he died in 1540. In modern art history, it is always presented, I guess I have to say almost always presented, as a showpiece of the style that came to be known as mannerism, sometimes called the stylish style. So we talk, for example, about unearthly anatomy, about lyrical contours, a rarefied palette, illogical spaces, and so forth, all of these being part of what we call mannerism in various ways. But when Giorgio Vasari, the first great historian of Italian Renaissance art, wrote of it, writing of the painting just a couple of decades later, he emphasized not that, but rather one meaningful detail. A cross gleaming in the surface of that urn held by an angel. This was a new take on the old idea of the cross near the infant. I believe that Parmigianino, who is so famous for the hyperbolic elegance of his style, was no less dedicated as an experimenter with content and meaning. And more to the point here, I believe he devised this idea with himself and his own career very much in mind. If there is one painting of his that is more famous in our time than the Madonna of the Long Neck, it is his self portrait in a convex mirror, which was also famous in his own lifetime. He had painted it at the tender age of 21 as a dazzling work of invention and craft. It was really meant as a showpiece. And it was meant for the eyes of no less than the Pope himself, Clement VII, to whom Parmigianino had sent it as a calling card when he was young, essentially to announce himself as the new Raphael. He had surely not forgotten that spectacular debut, his own spectacular debut, when he was designing what would be his last major work for a chapel in his hometown, in which he decided to reflect this most timeless and meaningful of forms on the gleam of a swelling surface. I've chosen to focus on a few uh, examples that bring the cross to the infancy because this can reveal the self-conscious originality of different approaches to the same basic idea, approaches that square neatly with instincts long associated with these artists' styles and careers. There are many other mechanisms by which the sacrifice was brought close to the infancy or into the infancy. Uh, The imported cross is one of about 10 different tactics that I uh, describe in the book. Another of the most abundant and probably familiar to modern observers is the profound sleep of the child, which is often, uh, if not quite always, meant to invite the ancient metaphorical association between slumber and death. That, of course, is an association that reaches far beyond the Christian tradition. Two examples within unusually charged images of the Madonna, an Austrian panel uh, now in Paris from the beginning of the 15th century. Uh, Another one uh, here at the gallery uh, from a couple of generations later by Cosme Tura. This one actually is not on view upstairs, uh, but it is on view in town at the National Museum of Women and the Arts. Some of you will be aware of the uh, major exhibition, Picturing Mary. Um, uh, So uh, in, in walking distance from here today. Many of you will have noted that the sprawled Christ child of the Parmigianino altarpiece, falls into an even more pronounced uh, uh, and and portentous sleep, Right, the body itself uh, anticipating what comes to be known as the Pieta, the lamentation over his body. But rather than focus more on uh, images of sleep, another somewhat less common family of images gestures instead toward the tomb from the infancy and in many remarkable ways. Uh, this is a small panel in Florence, although actually not in Florence right now. I didn't plan it this way, but this too is in the Picturing Mary show at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. If I'm not mistaken, this painting has never been in this country before now. An Extraordinary picture. Uh, it came to be known as the Madonna of the Stonecutters, sometimes the Madonna of the Rocks, the Madonna of the Caves. Uh, stonecutters because that's what the men are doing in the distance at right. More specifically, they are carving a column and a box. Column there, box down here. Uh, A box that can only be a sarcophagus. The column anticipates the one at which the adult Christ will suffer during his flagellation, and the sarcophagus anticipates the one he will occupy after the crucifixion in a sepulcher foreseen in the cave before which they do the work. Here, for example... It's striking that Andrea Mantegna, an artist who was famously fascinated not only by ancient sculpture but also especially by the depiction of stone itself, that he would have contrived this unique way to foresee the Passion. Instead of a premature apparition of the cross, this looks like a strangely concrete, almost narrative preparation for the future. And where his dilation of those years is predicated on distance and animation, inviting an observer to make sense of the unusual activity back there uh, to the side, other painters would contrive something more blunt and even startling. In a canvas now in Boston, Lorenzo Lotto sets the Christ child not directly on Mary's lap, but on a cushion. That was a common enough motif, but I'm aware of no other artist who had thought to rest that cushion in turn on a coffin. Where Mantegna and other artists had devised ways to incorporate or invoke the tomb of Christ's adult future, this object stands alone in being fit only for a child. Like a number of other works, works that we're not seeing today, this one therefore alludes not only to the sacrifice but also to death itself. Well, what about evil? Evil. Not surprisingly, there are fewer examples than there are of the foreseen passion, but the examples we do have occupy several of the most famous works of Renaissance art. Like the mousetrap of the Meroda triptych, most of them occupy northern rather than Italian art. And also, as with the Meroda triptych, most had gone unnoticed in modern scholarship until their detection in the middle of the 20th century or since. That was the case, for example, with the Portinari triptych, This is a monumental altarpiece painted by Hugo van der Hoos on commission from a Florentine banker known for his patronage of high-end Netherlandish artists. The basic program was relatively standard, an adoration of the shepherds flanked by images of the donors and their patron saints. But the triptych made a tremendous impression almost immediately upon its installation in Florence, about 1480 in part because of the relative novelty of the Netherlandish style and no less for this painter's uniquely expressive staging of the moment. Its fame endured and much has been written about it. Much has been written about it. But not until 1960 did someone, someone named Robert Walker, publish an article calling attention to a demon secluded within. Tucked into the deepest shadows of the building, back here, just above the horns of the ox is the face and claw of a demon. You can make out just a glint there. You can make it out just a little bit better in the higher contrast. This is the illustration to Walker's article published in 1960 in black and white that sort of uh, gets you a little bit closer to what's there. He is almost impossible to see today and may have been even more elusive in his own time, in the the painting's own time of course long before museum lighting and close-up photography, long before any photography. Some have thought, in fact, that the artist could have included it this way uh, for at least partly personal reasons. Hugo is documented as having suffered breakdowns for unclear reasons, wrestling, as it were, with demons of his own. I don't actually believe we can use that term to make the connection, but that's the idea. We will never know his exact intentions, but we have to take seriously his decision to push (coughs) this frightening presence to the brink of invisibility if the point of including a demon was to trumpet his defeat, why not make it more decisive? As, for example, Albrecht Durer would do in an enunciation woodcut from a few years later, uh, showing I don't have a good detail, but showing a kind of a sullen beast down here in the shadows, actually chained to the wall. Chained, uh, restrained, under the staircase through which Gabriel has entered the room. And by the way, this impression belongs here. This is a National Gallery of Art impression. This, too, is in the Picturing Mary exhibition. I really did not plan that. The situation is very different for a creature that has been called out from within Matthias Grunewald's Isenheim altarpiece. This is a massive three-level polyptych painted for a hospital chapel run by Antonite monks in the town of Isenheim. The imagery of the altarpiece is extravagantly original, especially in its middle tier, its second tier, which is what you're seeing here. The two panels at at the center of this second level and therefore at the heart of the entire altarpiece combine a virgin and child in a landscape with a scene of unearthly musicians sometimes referred to as an angel symphony or an angel concert. In 1988 the uh, the art historian Ruth Mellenckoff identified one of those musicians the green feathered one in the back row here as Lucifer himself. (coughs) Her case for that identification is complex, and it hinges in part on this figure's often noted different from the other musicians, in part on one description of Lucifer as having uh, had a feathered body, and in part on the very fact that Melanchthon specifically names him as Lucifer, who was himself an angel, like his bandmates here, these other (laughs) angels playing, before being cast out by God. Some, but not all, subsequent subsequent writers have accepted the idea, which I actually find quite plausible, but probably unprovable in the end. If he is Lucifer or another malignant spirit, the painter found an extraordinary way to bring him close. He is at once a part of the sacred moment and apart from it, set back at the margin of the picture, buffered by a shadow and contributing to music that cannot be completely harmonious. Uh, There is no such reticence or uh, subterfuge in this triptych, which was painted in the northern Netherlands by Hieronymus Bosch, probably a few years before Grunewald's German altarpiece. The core subject is the Adoration of the Magi, often called Epiphany in particular for this altarpiece, which is to say the king's arriving in tribute that during the 15th century had become one of the most popular of all subjects in Renaissance art. But unlike virtually all other images of the subject, this one unfolds in a troubled world. In the left wing, here, uh, Joseph is forlorn and impoverished. While off in the distance, peasants are dancing to bagpipe music that would have been regarded as dissolute or immoral. Back here. Uh, in the right wing, a man and a woman are attacked by wolves. The woman is trying to escape here. You can just make out the wolf there. It's too late for the man, who's already been set upon. And in the distant center, beyond the shed at Bethlehem, three armies are converging toward battle. see one here, one here, and way off in the distance, back here. Nice to see a windmill there in uh, not too far from Bethlehem. <laughs> But these worldly dangers are not the real face of, uh, of evil in this infancy scene. This is a wretched man with a thorny crown, uh, very uh, disreputable-looking friends back there in the shadows, and a vessel decorated with toads. That's what he's holding in his hand. He also has, down here, an oozing sore on his leg that is encased by a glass cuff covers it, but at the same time displays it. I'm sparing you a detail of that. Um, Those and other specifics have convinced many people that this figure was intended as no less than the Antichrist himself, here witnessing the arrival of his opponent. Whether or not he was meant specifically as Antichrist, almost no observers today doubt that he is evil. What matters most here is the brazenness of his presence, which is just what one might expect from Hieronymus Bosch, who had no equal in his own time or since as a conjurer of hell, of its denizens, or of their counterparts on earth. We've seen two painters imply without showing the proximity of evil in the two with which we began. Let's say Campin's placement of the mousetrap near the Annunciation, Botticelli's excavation of that darkness below the child's. Hugo van der Hoos actually depicted a diabolical creature, but almost imperceptibly. And if Grunewald's feathered musician is Lucifer, he too is present, but finding a way to play along. These different challenges of recognition and understanding were also opportunities. I'm convinced that one motive for the proliferation of these themes, both the sacrifice and evil in the infancy, was the appeal of challenge itself. By the middle of the 15th century, artists and their patrons had begun to place new value on the originality and sophistication of ideas in a work of art. The work of earlier generations had, of course, been full of invention and power of many kinds, but they were not as often regarded as the fruit of a unique creative mind. A small but telling index of the difference is the relative rarity of artists' signatures on works uh, works of art before the middle of the 15th century. To choose one of Uh, countless examples of this new premium on individual artistic invention, we can point to Jan van Eyck's Arnolfini portrait, painted in the same time and region as uh, a compass Triptych, with which we began. The painting was unprecedented in many ways, and it remains a completely magnetic object of interpretation in our own time. From my point here, it's enough to read what the painter himself wrote in the center. Jan van Eyck was here 1434, a line inconceivable in preceding generations. When earlier painters had signed their work, their verb was usually pinks it or fake it, so-and-so painted this or made this. Jan van Eyck instead announced his very presence and did so on the wall of these people's home, and more than that, over a mirror that reflects them and the room and two more people out here in front of it all. One of them could be the painter himself. One of them uh, as good a guess as any that the other one might represent uh, observers of the painting in the time of Van Eyck or ever since, standing in for all of us, as it were. My point is that hauntings of uh, Christ's infancy grew in part from this kind of (coughs) self-consciousness. Leading artists came to share the prestige of poets, theologians, and other intellectuals utmost admiration was reserved for those able to devise fresh concepts and vocabularies, even, and I think perhaps especially, for the most elemental of themes. To make a familiar kind of scene fresh, absorbing, and in some cases provocative, was to give new gravity to the subject and more value to the work itself as an object of interpretive interest. Their ingenuity draws you in. With that in mind, we can consider a final example and the latest of the works I'm showing today, an adoration of the magi signed and dated by Peter Bruegel the Elder in 1564. We don't know for whom or where it was made. Standing over a meter tall, it could have been an altarpiece, but it's just as reasonable, I think, to imagine this as a religious painting for an art collector. By this time, two years before he died, Peter Bruegel was a very well-collected artist. In recent scholarship, the suggestion has been made that the kings themselves, and especially the eldest of them, uh, the one in pink in the foreground, are somehow in league with dark powers. (laughs) Strange imagery on his robe is cited as evidence, as is the kind of haggard face of the second king behind him. Uh, I have to say I'm not quite convinced that the kings were meant to be evil. Their strangeness, to which admittedly, I think Christ does react with uh, something that looks like caution, at least, (laughs) uh, might better represent a more general suspicion about the wide world that they represent. In other words, somehow in tune with the dangerous world of Bosch's epiphany that we saw a moment ago. That said, there is more specific cause for concern in an element of the third king's gift. This is a neph, which is to say, a precious model of a ship, a piece of tableware that was not uncommon uh, in the the collections of um, uh, very affluent uh, collectors, patrons in the period. This one richly crafted in gold and shell and pearls and more. The sole passenger on that ship is a monkey emerging from the curled shell. And I was not able to get that close without pixelating, but you can just make him out here. That's his head. Here is his arm reaching down there. Apes and monkeys had long been established as symbols of mankind's base sinful nature. They, in fact, uh, headline a cast of uh, suspect creatures that I address collectively in the book as proxies of evil in various kinds of scenes. One of the better known examples is Albrecht Dürer's Virgin and Child with a Monkey. The key to this image being the fact that the monkey is tamed, even chained, as it were, by their presence. You can make out the chain here, secured to that bench, to that piece of wood. This impression, too, in the gallery here. If we doubt a sinister aspect for this tiny detail, and I think it would be reasonable to do that, Bruegel's decision to have him hold a mirror, a symbol of vanity, seems to seal the case. And here again, I'm afraid you'll have to take my word for it, but there's kind of a starburst frame here and then a convex uh, gleaming shape emerging from it. Here, in an engraving designed by Bruegel himself two years earlier, 1562, a peddler is robbed by rapacious monkeys. One in the foreground, all of them are doing inappropriate things, but one in the foreground here closest to Peter Bruegel's name, right here, uh, is bending down and looking at himself in a mirror, right, making clear that association with vanity that would have been perfectly clear nonetheless. So the sole occupant of this ship who emerges from darkness is sin, holding vanity on a type of tableware associated with lavish wealth. The sacrifice, in turn, is brought close by another object, a surrogate cross that rises directly above the child. It's formed by the head of a halberd held by the soldier behind Mary. Unlike the crosses we saw earlier, which were small, oblique, or in some cases inferred presences, suggested presences, this one comes on a man-made instrument of violence. It is held by a soldier peering intently at the child. Uh, Renaissance images of the subject often accompanied the kings with armed retainers, but their swords are typically sheathed and their lances are at ease. They convey uh, usually ceremony rather than weaponry, as is the case, for example, in this uh, uh, another grand adoration of the kings in London, uh, Jan Gosart. We met Gosart earlier in the the Washington picture. Um, Back here, some of the retainers, there are Uh, handles of swords, there's one here, there's one here, but the swords themselves, the blades, are invisible behind their clothing. By contrast, Peter uh, Bruegel's kings have come with men very much at arms. The sole glimpse of a sky, and by the way, that is a feature of the picture that's contrived by the unusual vertical format of this scene. This format is almost unique among major paintings by Peter Bruegel to make it upright like this. That sky bristles with blades. Along with the halberdier behind Mary and a crossbow leaning very close to the child. You can make it out here. These men could easily have evoked the soldiers dispatched by King Herod to massacre the newborns at Bethlehem or the soldiers who will come for the adult Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. You saw an image of that earlier. But I think for Netherlandish observers of the 1560s, these contemporary-looking soldiers and weapons could not have been wholly dissociated from the rising conflicts of their own time and place. The southern Netherlands, occupied by an unwelcome Spanish regent and forces. This had been the case since 1559. Open rebellion would erupt a few years later in 1568, but by the year of this painting, 1564, resistance had already begun to boil in Antwerp and Brussels, which is where Peter Bruegel lived worked. His reputation as a uniquely incisive observer of the real world and its people was secure by this time. Carl van Mander, the first great biographer of Netherlandish artists, often unfairly referred to now as the Netherlandish Vasari, it's the basic idea, uh, van Mander remarked famously that Bruegel and a friend, and I quote, often went out of town among the peasants to funfairs and weddings, dressed in peasant costume, and gave presents just like the others, pretending to be family or acquaintances of the bride and bridegroom. However true that may or may not have been, when one stands in front of the London adoration, it's hard not to pause at Van Mander's claim that that at these celebrations, Bruegel gave presents just like the others. In the unusually close yet crowded view he created for this epiphany, he leaves a clear patch of bare earth between Mary and the threshold of the picture, which is where he wrote his name and the date down here in the dirt, which might signal his own approach to Christ, perhaps the literal humility of the ground itself or both. I'm actually less interested in that personal resonance than in the less remarked passage of Van Mander's account. His closing observations about Peter Bruegel include this. One sees many unusual inventions of symbolic subjects of his witty work in print, but he had still many more neatly and carefully drawn with some captions on them, some of which he got his wife to burn when he was on his deathbed because they were too caustic or derisory, either because he was sorry or that he was afraid that on their account she would get into trouble or might have to answer for them. In his will, he left his wife a piece with a magpie on the gallows. By the magpie, he meant gossiping tongues, which he committed to the gallows. This painting still exists, a fantastic small painting in Darmstadt. He also made a picture of truth will out. This, according to him, was the best he ever made. It's striking that these three culminating remarks are all about secrets and truth. Prints burned so as not to be discovered, a painting condemning gossips, and an image of truth said to have been Bruegel's own favorite. The single most extraordinary action in the London Adoration is the sharing of a secret. It is told by the green-hatted man just beyond the third magus and heard by Joseph, who leans close as the man whispers. One can speculate freely about his words, pertaining, say, to false charges of cuckoldry in the ear of this unlikely father, which has been suggested, to the riches of the kings, to the gifts, to Herod's plot against the newborn king, and so on. But in the end, it's unknowable, because it is inaudible, and like nearly all expressions of sacrifice or evil in Christ's infancy, it is unscripted in the Bible or major devotional writings. This does not illustrate a text. If the nameless man's message was meant to be specific, the only person outside the painting ever to have been certain about it was the artist who invented it. Bruegel knew that this elusiveness would make it all the more absorbing. As in so many hauntings of the infancy, the art of such partial or imagined presence is no less compelling than the fact of it. Primed as they were to recognize, or I think even seek, these expressions— Any number of Renaissance observers wondering what Joseph is learning here would have recognized a rough cross rising at his right arm and a gleaming monkey uh, emerging at his left. Thank Thank you.
0: Do we have any? Do we have any questions or comments? Yes, here in the front row, nice and loud, please.
2: Thank you. That was very interesting. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask a word or two about the, the genesis of this project with you. For how many years have you been thinking about it, and how did
0: you get it started? Could you repeat the question?
2: and then answer?
1: It? sure. Uh, the Question was: um, How did I start this project? And. Um, And why did I start this project, I suppose? I ask myself that all the time. I started it a long time ago. I started it um, when I was working on my dissertation, which was on Roger van der Weyden, on one painter. Um, More specifically, I was working on uh, the imagery of time, the um, sort of compositions of time in his work. Um, There is a famous Roger van der Weyden altarpiece in Munich showing the Adoration of the Magi, as several of which we've seen here. Um, On the shed at Bethlehem, directly above the child, there is a crucifix attached to the shed uh, and his body on the cross. Um, That has always been noticed. It couldn't be more conspicuous, but no one had ever really talked about what strikes me as an extraordinary idea to to plant it right there to make it absolutely present. So I just began digging a little bit into the um, uh, other versions, uh, other articulations of the idea, um, and was struck by the the endless energy of artists in different times and places pursuing this so actually the the, uh, project began as um, a book just on the passion in the infancy and only eventually did I decide that there was something parallel enough in evil to think about them not just on related tracks but also in terms of a, a similar sort of methodological question how had these two enormous kinds of themes not been bracketed as such in our time thank you
2: and the question
0: yes sir in the back
1: are these artists aware of each other's paintings or did it come out of their own imagination is it of the things accordingly uh so the question is whether whether the artists uh, were aware of each other's work or um uh, came to these things on their own That's, that question actually in some ways gets to the heart of the entire topic um increasingly through the 15th and the 16th century, they were well aware. Of course, not universally of each other's work, but um, in all kinds of ways. Uh, Some of the paintings being relatively publicly available, some of them not available at all. Uh, We often forget that, that some of these paintings were in uh, individuals' homes and not seen by other artists. But prints did play a significant role in in that dimension of, for lack of a better term, publicizing the idea. But I think the idea itself had a, a kind of a natural momentum. So there's a way in which I think some of the strongest and most interesting of these artists were working hard to come up with their own way of doing something that they had seen elsewhere or that was familiar.
2: Yes, yes comment? Yes, please. Uh, could you comment on the, the fact that the Christ job is often shown wearing coral jewelry and that that, that is to the border, I understand an ancient symbol
1: to warn of evil, and also sometimes it's in shapes that are a mark of the passion. Shall I repeat that? The question is. Um, uh, those images, and there are many, particularly images of the Madonna and Child, and particularly Italian. This is actually quite rare, relatively rare, north of the Alps, in which the Christ child is wearing coral. Um, exactly as you say, it, it had an old apotropaic function, the idea of warding off evil, warding off the evil eye in particular. Uh, I talk a little bit about it in the book. Um, it, it raises some interesting questions. If, if something is being resisted, um, is it... The devil himself or is it the evil eye was not really thought of typically as the devil it was thought of as other kinds of um, earthly malefactors ill wishers within the world so it's sometimes been interpreted uh, as something a little bit more anthropological that that is the sort of thing that some parents would actually give to their children in households and that this is then transferred to the child the christ child i think it has to be seen as having a theological dimension but it's it's not an easy one it, it comes from a different place. Thank you.
2: Yes, please. Uh, thank you very much for your talk, Professor Akers. Um, your first reading of these paintings has left me wondering whether there may have been theological debates during this period that may have touched upon, for example, the nature of good and evil or the Christ child and creation and so forth. Um, uh,
1: yes. <laughs> 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 next question no um, <laughs> no 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 uh, it's, it's enormous the question is whether there, th- these paintings in various ways might have responded to debates about evil about the incarnation and so forth um, th- there could hardly have been two more central ideas two more interesting and important ideas in theology and in devotion Right? less official, uh, official or doctrinal sort of considerations of things um, there are debates uh, but I would say that I don't think these are images about debate. I think, I think part of what has happened in these subjects is that both of them, in a way, although neither has a prime locus, a prime source, for example, in scripture, both of them are unimpeachable ideas. Of course, the sacrifice will come. In a sense, that's what the infancy is about. Um, and of course, evil is being resisted with this. right? I I think that the idea that these things were applicable or desirable, uh, applicable to any circumstance or desirable by any patron, it's not necessarily specific to this town or that town or this creed, for example. Um, I think that flexibility of each theme made them that much more appetizing to these artists. Thank you. I have
2: two more questions. Um, Yes, here and then. Hello. these impulses and ideas been, rela- um, been related as to um, the occurrence of the year 1500 and apocalyptic concerns
1: about um, the year 1500? question is uh, to what degree these might have had something to do with anxieties about uh, the apocalyptic year, the millennial year 1500. Some of you will know that we do have works of art that we regard as having been attuned to that very real fear. One of them, in fact, we saw quite briefly, Botticelli's mystic nativity is explicitly concerned with uh, what it calls the time after the halftime in 1500. I think most of them would not really have been attuned to that particular concern. Um, plenty of them come decades before. Uh, that, of course, is the kind of thing that is that, that will vary in differently in the eyes of uh, different artists and patrons and audiences um, so it's hard for me to generalize but I think by and large that would have been an exception to the impetus behind these thank you Yes,
2: please. I have a question about context again and not so much <laughs> the theological context but the context of belief and unbelief at this time because this painting be especially so fascinating and so striking in the way in what it seems to be doing to the viewer, which is that enormous figure of Joseph is right there. And rather than being a painting that incites devotion and a simple, faith-filled response, it seems to be about uncertainty and fostering uncertainty and what is this man saying and how are things aligned. It seems to be really that. So I wondered if that might be part of what you're seeing in Renaissance invention, that these artists are not simply Choosing um, features that could be, uh, that would allow for invention because there's no textual basis, mm-hmm. but they're pushing um, what we might see as, as a matter of unbelief in this period, perhaps. Um, in other words, it's not that they're choosing, or maybe they are from your other work, um, examples that could <coughs> illuminate some positive aspect of the nativity that isn't shown in the text. But there are two things as well, on evil in particular, or on suffering, and I wonder if there is an important link, perhaps, there,
1: between um, what they are doing that is somewhat risky and matter of intention. That's very interesting. The question I'll, I'll try to put in a nutshell is, is um, to what extent this is a, this is about artists thinking about uncertainty in their own times, right? Perhaps reaching beyond the theological core of these two themes, that it... That it belongs to a larger context. Um, in some cases, I certainly think that's the case. And, and the fact that you have focused on the Bruegel in particular, there could hardly have been a more anxious and uncertain decade than the 1560s in the Netherlands. In various ways, we are just on the on the eve here, as it were, of iconoclastic riots in Antwerp and other cities. Um, I, I do think that's often the case. And, and one thing that I haven't talked about here today, I talk a little bit about in uh, in the text. Um, I think with evil in particular, one of the things that would have been important to the artists and even more to many observers, not all observers, but many observers, is the idea that this is a story still being written. Whereas The Passion of Christ is a perfectly familiar, in some sense, more or less perfectly familiar biography. We know the beginning and we know the end, and that's what this is about. Uh, Evil has no plot. It is still alive, in the world, so I think the fact that, for example, the uh, the shadows in the Botticelli picture upstairs, and a number of other paintings that do similar things, I think the idea that in some of these pictures um, there is still an openness and a presence and a hiddenness about evil. Uh, that's because for any number of observers, that's true. It's not just theology; it's life. That evil is still alive. The, the different contexts and the, and the specifics beyond that are endless.
0: This has been the National Gallery of Art Podcast.